1: And welcome to Awesome Etiquette,
0: where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty.
1: On today's show, we take your questions on cutting food with a fork, a family member who is always trying to feed you, not wanting to participate in the wedding bouquet toss, and responding to invitations to gatherings that provide no information about COVID-19 safety measures.
0: For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, our question of the week is about carefully choosing your friends on social media.
1: Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a PostScript segment where we compare elements of etiquette from the 1922 edition, the first edition of etiquette, to our newest edition, the 20th.
0: All that's coming up.
1: Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in snowy Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post.
0: And I'm Dan Post-Senning.
1: And I am in love with the Gilded Age. New Oh, good. I know, a series on, on HBO called The Gilded Age. And it is, Dan, so deliciously fun. I've been dying to tell you about it because it takes place in Emily's era. Granted, it takes place in... Emily's era when she would have been about 10 years old, nine years old. So I think 1882 is when it starts. And it's a Julian Fellows, the so same person who did Downton Abbey, um, set in New York City. We've even heard of the famed and, and seen the character Mrs. Astor, who Emily makes some references to throughout her lifetime. Very nice. Um, so it was really cool. I don't think we're going to get any mentions of like the Post family or the the Price family who would be more likely that the Prices might come up because Emily's father was such a famous architect back then. But it is just, it is delicious to kind of focus so much on Emily Post and then see a TV show that is kind of in her world and it's New York and it's high society and In so many ways, even though it's before the time she actually wrote, because she wrote her first etiquette book in 1922, you're seeing so many of the traditions that Emily did allow to carry through. And there's even some characters who question some of those traditions that by the time 1922 comes around and Emily's writing her big book, you can see how she ends up with both, like, the history and the tradition from the Gilded Age, but has to marry them with contemporary norms. And you hear it when Emily talks about, like, a... Traditional invitation for something versus when she talks about how kids these days do something. You know uh, what I mean? I'm
0: clutching my pearls over here, just so are you arguing, know. Are you, clutching? Are you?
1: <laughs> but it was delightfully fun. I've seen the first and second episodes, and I don't know how it'll pan out in terms of actual plot and and the goodness of of a show in that in that kind of way. But I watched the first episode just to get the the storyline. Watched the first episode again immediately after to just etiquette geek out on it
0: <laughs> oh, that is a hot tip lizzie Vost.
1: <laughs> um so i'm i'm the kind of person who i sign into my hbo only when there's a show i really want to watch and this was one where i was like really excited for it and it came out and definitely definitely in- enjoying just the reality of emily well the, i guess the fantasy of emily's world back then
0: well a fantasy to us but a reality for her and really encouraging to hear that the Downton Abbey creator producer team is also working on this. um, Yeah. Makes me that much more interested for sure. (laughs)
1: if any of you are out there having seen the episodes please 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 weigh in send us some feedback send us some thoughts part of me wants to like start a little like watch party or something like that (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I really I really was jazzed on it and it is very fun to be back in the world of a Julian Fellows uh, production so so that's really cool but that was my like etiquette geek out on pop culture
0: (laughs) well I'm I'm smiling and laughing and it's a genuine smile and I appreciate your distinction around the well i I don't know exactly how well the characters are fleshed out or how the story will (laughs) develop at this point but it it really is the setting and it is the 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 whole staging of the show that is drawing you in and i've got to say there are very few shows or movies that i can think of that really paint a vivid picture of that particular world the gilded age was was Called Gilded, it on the surface was incredibly rich, but maybe was also a little shallow in some ways. I mean, it was gilded, oh, yeah. it wasn't substantively <laughs> awesome. And, no,
1: most definitely.
0: But I think that makes it less likely to be sort of a, a subject of study for a, a modern eye or contemporary eye. I'm thinking of um, that unusual Martin Scorsese film, The Age of Innocence,
1: mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. falls
0: outside of his usual. Subject matter and sort of approach to filmmaking, but is just an incredible picture of that particular world, the Vanderladen China or silver and (laughs) and, then the protocols of that world. But it's so nice to hear about another example because frankly, I need to update the impressions that that movie created.
1: I mean, I definitely laugh at the stuff where they're talking about, you know, um, new rich versus old rich, new money versus old money, that kind of thing. And that's a big thing. And that's a big kind of storyline throughout it. I personally cringe whenever I, you know, hear the single adult woman referred to as spinster, but I know it's from the era, but there's just... There's, there's so many delicious things going on, and I'll be really curious to see how it pans out over the whole season, if it, if it holds muster, or if it's really just a place for, you know, ye etiquette experts to get, ye etiquette authors to geek out on for a little bit.
0: Well, well give um, me a week or two to catch up, but feel free to ask me about my impressions in coming intros.
1: Okay, I will. I will. I will. And please, audience, do send us your thoughts if any of you are checking out this show Um, or if you know of other shows that might have taken place during the Gilded Age or movies that took place during it, because I would. First of all, I, you know, watching so much stuff, it's January in Vermont, second year, third year of a pandemic, but I definitely um, would love recommendations if you guys know of other stuff that's in this category okay so that's like you know that's the the tv update do you think that maybe we should immediately get into answering some questions today cousin
0: i think that's a great idea (laughs) let's do it
1: Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, we're at Inst—that's That's I-N-S-T. On Instagram, we are at Emily post Institute, And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with any social media post so that we know you want your question on the show.
0: Our first question this week is about a fork faux pas. Dear Posts, I was taught to use both a knife and fork when eating. Also, that one could use the edge of the fork to cut one's food in certain instances where the food itself was soft, for instance with a filleted fish or a piece of pie. My in-laws use their fork for all manner of cutting, while their knife sits unused at the side or rests across the top of the plate. Not just gentle cutting, but even when they must use the edge of a fork in a seesaw motion several times to sever the piece of food. Personally, I find this to be very impolite, but I can't seem to find anything definitive on the matter. Mind you, they are very particular about table manners and such concepts as whether the napkin is set under the fork. They say, never appropriate, verse to the side, which I know is the formal approach and whether the napkin on your lap should extend across both legs or just one. Yet the use of a fork as a knife is perfectly acceptable. I appreciate your insight here, Andrew.
1: Oh, Andrew, the phrase to each their own comes to mind with this. Also, best laid plans, like things, things like that. You can lead a horse to water. What I find very interesting about this particular question is that there's clear knowledge of something detailed like the difference between where you place a napkin and at the same time there is this completely unused knife at these folks settings that just seems so counter to me it's like this would seem like the the close the door after you enter it kind of advice whereas the napkin might be like a very detailed piece of hosting advice, you know, that that you might or might not do. And it, it just really strikes me that there's the focus on the napkin and the understanding of never putting it under the fork, which would mean you'd have to move the fork before you're going to use the fork to then get the napkin. And that's one of the reasons so why much you work. hear. Yeah, like, oh my gosh, so much work. Gilded Age stuff. But it really fascinates me that it seems like they have a really comprehensive view of certain pieces of dining etiquette. And then they're making exceptions for themselves with this fork as a, as a knife thing. I'm not sure if you're looking for us to give you advice on how to handle the fact that you feel watching them dine this way as impolite, the use of that fork as impolite, or whether you're just looking for commentary on it. But it is, I would say, I put it this way, it's not what we teach in terms of how to use the fork. Um, we're very much so in the same vein as you, Andrew, where if you had a very soft lasagna or maybe a scalloped potato dish, or as you mentioned, a filet of fish or a... um What was the other one that was mentioned? A pie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Cake. These are all things that you could easily use the side of the fork to cut from. But the using the fork in a sawing motion when there is a knife there, I'll admit that one baffles me.
0: Me too, Lizzie Post.
1: I'm curious to hear what my cousin's thoughts are on the napkin. Because, Dan, you, like, wrote the section in our book on the napkin really well. There were details in that.
0: (laughs) I love talking about napkins. You do? Well it's 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 the first utensil. You sit down at the table, what's the first thing in your place setting that you interact with that you engage with that you're going to use throughout the meal maybe and then probably is going to be the last thing you touch at the table.
1: That would be the napkin, Dan.
0: <laughs> it would indeed. And you're talking to the person who started teaching dining etiquette out of a a teaching deck that I inherited it said nothing about the napkin it was my first great contribution to the (laughs) emily post table manners program was some napkin specific advice and a slide for napkin use i love that one of the things that we talk about there is um, a triangle fold or a rectangle fold it's really up to you it doesn't matter when you unfold your linen napkin and place it in your lap and Usually, those are big enough that they quite comfortably cover your lap, drape across both legs, which is nice because it gives you coverage and protects your clothing. But there's a point of casual etiquette refinement that I also like to point out, which is that if you get a paper napkin, there's no point in in trying to un- fold it or get it down to single sheets it. that you then refold <laughs> it you can take a paper towel fold it in half or a napkin as it's handed to you a paper napkin and just place it in your lap and oftentimes that involves resting it on one leg or the other it's so not big there, enough to fit across two right there are a lot of instances where i find myself with a napkin sort of balanced or placed on one thigh or the other and I think because I'm right-hand dominant, it tends to be on my right side, but I could mm-hmm. – I, I, there's no particular etiquette around that. But that was the one thing I thought about that might create an impression that it goes on one leg or the other. Or there might be instances where it seems a little strange to try to get it to cover your whole lap or to have it not. So that's the that that was the little dividing line that I came up with there in my mind.
1: But for the most part, do you think napkin on both, both if it fits?
0: I think so. A linen napkin, yeah. big enough, just – covers broadly across your lap. And I mean, if you've got your legs crossed delicately at the ankles or however <laughs> you cross your legs, like maybe one leg is a little higher than the other and it sort of feels like that's where it's placed. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I don't think of that as a big point of distinction. I had another thought, though. This was the only sure. thing I could think of for why you might avoid using the knife, particularly if you were particular about your table manners. Mm-hmm. and i'm wondering if this family has internalized the idea that you minimize the use of the knife and as a as a point well, of well, refinement i was
1: going to say why <laughs>
0: well and, and it's a very traditional table manner it comes from way back when when your knife might double as a weapon might be a mm-hmm. tool that you carry with you and also use at the table so as the the knife became more and more of a strictly dining utensil as it became part of a set of tableware and not a tool that you brought to the table with you. Mm -hmm. There was this little refinement that the less you handled your knife at the table, the more refined your manner. So if you weren't really using it to cut your food, the idea was that you would set it down on the top of your plate and it made you appear less aggressive or i would be
1: so curious as to like the dates like the history of when that shift was occurring only because in my mind another section that we heavily wrote and heavily edit in the book was the continental versus american dining and the american is the one where you would set the knife down whereas the continental you often just keep that that knife in the hand am i correct
0: You do, although it's something I still mention today, that if you're not using your knife to cut, the idea is that you set it down, that you don't leave it in your hand. And you don't generally have utensils in your hands when you're not using them, but the idea that you would just hold your fork while you were eating and talking, it's a real subtlety to table manners, and I would never try to – amplify that subtlety to the point where i'm avoiding using my knife at all and i certainly wouldn't do it to the point where it caused me to do something that felt or looked awkward with one of my other utensils
1: so like that sawing motion of the fork that andrew mentions
0: i mean in terms of a, a sort of a coherence to our table manners and a practicality really being what drives them i'm so with you that the second you're really efforting that fork cut That's what the knife's there for. If you've got one, may as well pick it up and use it.
1: I get very intrigued by the idea that these folks are setting a table with a knife. It's not just that they don't set the knife out at all, don't give one to people, but that they they set the knife out, but they themselves don't touch it at all. I find that piece of it interesting.
0: And I can certainly imagine and even sympathize with Andrew, who I'm picturing sitting at this table as a bit of a cultural anthropologist watching this (laughs) group that clearly are invested in certain particulars of table manners and maybe wondering why this behavior, I'm not going to call it strange, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. but this behavior that that strikes him as a little bit different is part of the, the mix here when you wouldn't expect it to be. It's interesting to me how that jumps out a little bit. As far as how I would approach talking about it with the family, I'm a little bit with you that if it's not feeling problematic, if it's not bothersome, I would put it in that category of, boy, I love watching how people do things. I'm not going to play the role of corrector.
1: Back um, to that to each their own kind of thing.
0: Yeah, Exactly. Or 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 just if if it ever came up, if it was being discussed, I might, as we often say on the show, use this question as a jumping off point or maybe even just the existence of a podcast about etiquette that you like to listen to as a jumping off point
1: (laughs) i was thinking 20th edition 20th edition as a as a holiday or birthday present for these folks could be an interesting an interesting thing to toss into the mix
0: (laughs) well and and you know me i'm always a conflict avoidant i i would proceed with a question and because it's my question i would probably proceed with it of (laughs) of inquiring if there's something about not using the knife that is the point of refinement that they're
1: Going looking for. to honor yeah. or,
0: or, or embody it with this practice of fork cutting.
1: Andrew, thank you very much for this slightly perplexing question, I would say. But we are hoping that our thoughts on the matter help you to decide what to do and how to interact with your relatives when you do get the chance to dine together. And please keep us updated. We'll be curious if there's a historical aspect that's behind this. You're worried about not doing the right thing. Your table manners.
0: Now you're talking like mom and
1: dad. Look, you may not care much about table manners now, but when you grow up to be me, then you'll care. This question is titled, Need to Feed. Hi, Liz and Dan. Dan, congratulations on your new baby on the way. Aww, thank have a... you. I know, I know. <laughs> it's coming up, it's close, it's it might be really here by the close. time you hear this. <laughs> I know, I know. I have a question about my mom and her quote-unquote need to feed. I love my mom more than anything, and I would love some polite sample scripts that do not hurt her feelings. My mom is amazing. She's incredibly kind, thoughtful, and full of the best kind of hospitality. These traits equal what I call her need to feed if you were to stop by my mom's house, she would immediately lay out sweets for you to munch on and start putting together a grilled cheese and perhaps heat up some leftovers for you. If it was around lunch or supper time, she somehow can change her plans to feed her immediate family to accommodate any number of unexpected guests. Her need to feed doesn't depend on the time of day nor the type of visitor. Anyone that enters her home is immediately presented with all the food they could ever dream of. I love her spirit of generosity and recognize she shows her love through food. I live next door and often stop by once or twice a day to visit. However, my husband and I are very conscious about food waste. As we live in the country, we put a lot of planning into what we're going to eat and when, and then only buy that amount of food when we do our weekly grocery shopping in town. We're also trying to watch what we eat by limiting snacks and treats. Here's my problem. My mom will call me at noon two or three times a week to say she has lunch ready for me. I almost always turn her down. Either I've already started preparing lunch or have planned what I'm eating throughout the week and do not want to waste what I have prepared. You can hear the disappointment in her voice when I try to explain that I already have groceries and need more of a heads up if she wants to have me over as I'm cooking as well. Also, anytime we stop by, I'd appreciate it if she didn't offer us sweets and snacks. If you say no the first time, she interprets it as she needs to find another option, as we don't like the first thing she presented. Sometimes it's easier to just eat what she puts out instead of denying her four or five times. Do you have any tips on how I can acknowledge her generosity while politely redirecting her attempts to feed me? Thanks, daughter of need to feed. (laughs) I like that.
0: (laughs) daughter of need to feed thank you so much for this question i want to answer this question as son-in-law of need to feed because my mother-in-law you could be this could be a description of my familiar. mother-in-law she is this incredible is. and yeah i start thinking about the food before i start thinking about her visits or visiting <laughs> her and p- part of my thinking is about planning and Mm -hmm. how much I'm going to eat before I arrive because I know when I walk through the door there are (laughs) going to be things waiting for me and oftentimes even so well thought out that they're the things that I mentioned I liked the most the last time I was there so there's even a bit of a these were really prepared for you or with you in mind so that McDonald's stop an hour before you arrive just is ill-advised and (laughs) on on several levels both socially and I I actually want to save room for the yummy food that's waiting and I've learned that. And as I was reading your question, I was thinking to myself how, how natural this role is for people, how much of a part of caregiving it can be to okay. want to prepare food and offer food to people and feed people, really, really um, nourish them in, in so many ways, whether it's with your care or with the actual food itself. And there is so much happening there, both in terms of what's being communicated as well as and along with the actual food that you're eating or being given. And mm-hmm. I, I have a three-part strategy here. And I oh, wanna, I
1: like this. What have you got?
0: I want to give it to you in sort of some, some quick parts that I want to hear what my cousin Lizzie has to think about this plan. All right, what you got? My one thought is that basic dictates of etiquette say that um, you don't have to eat anything you don't want to. And it's okay to decline, but you always want to thank You always want to acknowledge and appreciate the effort and the thought that someone put in and you want to keep your nose firm and clear. And I think those two things compare really nicely with each other. When your decline is firm and clear, you can follow it up with a thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's also clear and can be a nice little coda. can put a period on that sentence or that interaction in a way that concludes it or Mm -hmm. gives an indication that. That it's not something that you need to to continue to talk about. Dan,
1: I want to jump in here and just say I really like the fact that you're not making the thank you and the declining mutually exclusive, that they can work together. I think a lot of people feel this moment of I don't want to say thank you for something I'm not thankful for. And I think what you are thankful for in this case, and, and tell me if I've got this kind of angle on it wrong or if this is what you're thinking, but you're thanking someone for, for choosing to be hospitable, even if it's not the way that that you that you might find helpful right now. For instance, the sweets when you're trying to stay away from sweets, but you're looking past the exact moment of sweets being presented to you to the idea that my mom is caring. This is how my mom shows love. This is how she shows hospitality. I want to thank her for presenting that to me, but be really clear that sweets are really not something I want to be presented with right now or that I'm going to engage with if I'm presented with them,
0: right? Absolutely. And I think that's part of the function of the clarity of the Mm no That it's not a, oh, let me see what you got or, oh, you know, I'm not sure. But – no, I'm. Clear. I, I like yours. I'm. I'm. I'm not eating sweets right now during the day, or I, I just had lunch, or I'm really going to wait till dinner. I'm just not hungry. You can offer an explanation mm-hmm. if you want, particularly if it's going to be useful. Sometimes that explanation goes a long way. It just establishes the the good reason behind your no and it also sets you up for then turning and saying thank you so much for the offer I really appreciate it. That's mm-hmm. tactic 1, no but thank you. No but thank tactic you. Tactic 2 is take what you like. That mm-hmm. it's okay to be selective. When someone's really casting about and they're they're looking to put a snack in front of you that you might enjoy till later, it's okay to choose one of the options or even give a little direction and that's one of the things that's worked really well for me. Ah, okay. Like, oh, I've made this. I've made this. I've made this. Oh, do you have any of that such and such? Because that's what I really want. <laughs> and, and you, you know often what? There have is some. It's thing. right here. I brought some of that also. It's ready for you. And You're
1: thinking of those spice nuts, aren't you? That's that's, that's like one of the favorites that comes out of the Alka Alka Brings. <laughs>
0: oh, and it's, it's eluding me right now, but there are these sweet um, – they're like sweet cheese balls. They're whey balls. Yes.
1: Yes, Uh, And they're in sugar
0: water, and I can eat them by the jar. And um, a couple of visits ago, I identified and acknowledged that of all the things offered, particularly the sweets, those were some of my favorite. And guess what? They come every time. Nice big jar now.
1: (laughs) Um, I bet they're in the car on the way up there. (laughs) So so
0: take what you like. Find Mm -hmm. a, a, a little area where she can lean into that that type of care for you and you can feel good about accepting it and Mm -hmm. maybe you can really pare it down you know mama the snack that you can offer me when you come by that i will almost always say yes to or i'll decline less often or whatever it is is such and such
1: an apple or some carrots or whatever you know some like a little vegetable thing or something yeah yeah i really like that idea of focusing on the ways and the places that you can engage because that that helps balance this relationship and also keeps it from only being about one person mitigating someone else's behavior, which I think is a hard thing to do when you're in a host-guest and mother-daughter relationship.
0: Yeah. And part of this three-part approach is I'm also not taking the approach of let's talk to mom about not doing this so much. I'm accepting I'm in some that, ways yeah. that this is the kind of role that – that someone plays and really likes playing and is part of who they are, and that part it's of their a-
1: persona. Yeah, yeah.
0: N- not something that is going to be easy to shut off. It's more something that you want to figure out a good relationship to it. That probably is the most effective way to both enjoy this particular kind of care and and also not not confront someone with changing something that's really fundamental to who they are.
1: So what have you got as your third your third tip? Because I think these are just so good, Dan.
0: <laughs> my, my third tip has to do with that thought about an intentional diet, being aware of and concerned about food waste and the way you plan meals weekly, monthly, however you do mm-hmm. that. It's um, something I also sympathize with being in the process of doing it with my my wife right now as we plan for a much busier household. We're really systematizing mm-hmm. a lot of our processes as we're nesting and getting ready. And and meal plans, planning our food and our shopping is part of that. And I, I can appreciate how organized that can be and how good that can feel to have that well organized. I think that you want to rope your mom in on that plan as much as possible. And I'm thinking in particular about the lunch offers that come a couple times a week. Mm-hmm. And can you build mom into that weekly plan? Can you count on one lunch or two lunches? And have a discussion about it ahead of time so it it fits in with your larger strategies about how you eat and how you have a responsible relationship with food that you you buy and that you try not to waste. And if you can talk to her about that, if this is something she loves, if that's something you can connect over, um, it might be a way to make your mother really happy honor the type of approach that you want to take and also get some yummy prepared meals (laughs) along the way.
1: Dan, I absolutely love your one, two, three on this. I think that it is an a plus answer that, that doesn't involve the big sit down conversation. And I'm so excited to hear an, an answer that kind of tries to identify both needs of both parties and think, thank and decline Take what you like or identify things that they could aim for that would be good for you to, to always say yes to. And I, I just love the idea of making the plan that, that work this into all this wonderful planning that you're doing. Work your mom into that somehow. I think that these are three really great strategies. And Daughter of Need to Feed, I am hopeful that you think these are three really great strategies that you can implement as well. would love to hear an update about how this goes as you try to implement some of them in the future.
0: Good luck. Yum, yum. (laughs) There's something we all enjoy about staying for dinner. Have you ever thought why? It's because eating with others is fun. People like to come together at mealtimes enjoy each other's company while they're enjoying good food but it's different with Ralph our next question is about bouquet toss trouble uh-oh Uh oh! hi Lizzie and Dan I just went to a friend's quite traditional wedding in South Georgia she's a newer friend but a good friend and I didn't know how to tell her I really don't want to participate in the bouquet toss I'm 25, but unmarried women still aren't treated like full adults in this part of the world. Participating in the bouquet toss makes me feel like a secondary citizen, and like the rest of the married guests in the crowd are looking down on me, as a child who hasn't made it. About half the guests had gone home, so my friends and I were saying goodbye to the bride when she said, with panic in her tone, Wait! The bouquet toss is coming up! Can you stay for that? My stomach dropped. One of my friends and I had planned to quietly step away so we wouldn't have to participate, but we were basically the only single women left, so we felt obligated. I know it's not my wedding day, but I'm really tired of feeling like a secondary citizen among my married friends and acquaintances. How do I navigate this? On one hand, it's not my special day, and I want to support a friend without making a scene. On the other hand, participating in this tradition really violates my personal sense of self. Can I kindly tell the bride I will be happy to watch but not participate? If the bride or another guest starts insisting and starts causing a scene until I go to the front, like they have done at other weddings I've been to, do I have to be the one to yield? How much do I have to set aside my core values and sense of self to avoid making a scene? Thanks so much. I have no idea how to handle this. Sincerely. My singleness is not a character trait.
1: (laughs) I love that sign off and I totally agree with it. This is a tough one. This is again in that category of sort of push and pull. It feels like either you're acquiescing to someone else's desires that don't make you feel good, or you're making someone else potentially not feel good in some of these circumstances, not all of them for sure, because you're sticking up for your own feelings. And that's a very tricky place to be. I will say that anecdotally in my own life, I tend to often acquiesce when it's not my thing. So it's not my day, it's not my party, it's it's not my event. Is more likely that if one pass of no no no, I'm a I'm a, a viewer, not a participator in this particular wedding event didn't get me there. I will often begrudgingly then, you know, go do the thing that they're hoping for you to do. In this particular instance, Dan, it sounds like the bride was trying to have a moment that in her mind is a very classic wedding moment that she didn't want to miss – And these were the last two people out. And just so you know, my advice until we read that particular section of this question was going to be, Oh, you just, you You sneak out. You don't have to. Yeah. You sneak out. Like you make yourself so unavailable for this moment and then you resurface and say your goodbyes, right? Like you just sneak out. It's okay. Um, but you got, you got, I wouldn't say caught, but (laughs) trapped maybe in the middle of your exit, caught up, (laughs) caught up in the middle of your exit and i think that that particular moment was a i think it would have been i don't want to say right because i don't i don't want to say that you have to step on your own toes in this case but i think that given that there were only a couple people who would participate in this and the bride seemed to really want to do it That you, you do it and you do it for her and you let it be for her and you, you leave it all there. But I think that's a hard thing to ask someone to do every single time. And it's why I think avoiding the moment is a good way to go. I think saying something directly, if someone tries to push you to participate in the moment. And remember, we're often at weddings dealing with people who, who have been drinking and the bouquet toss comes at the end. And that can, that can just mean people are more willing to push you as opposed Mm -hmm. to read your signals. Um I've had that happen at a number of weddings and I think it's just a reality that that you're dealing with. Um but I think making yourself scarce is is the best thing you can do during that particular moment of the wedding. Dan, do I sound like I'm I'm giving advice to just like squeak off? <laughs> or do no, you think do you think I, this I, is reasonable given the circumstances?
0: <laughs> it's so tough because I I like you. I really appreciate where this question's coming from. And that the the idea that, well, anyone who's single would be waiting would want to catch the bouquet indicating that they will be the next to be married is something that is a ritual that's not only not going to be appealing to everyone, but is actually distasteful to many people Mm -hmm. is something that they Mm -hmm. don't want to participate in. And we say that respect is so important it's fundamentally important when we talk about etiquette. And so often the focus of that respect is about respecting others, but mm-hmm. we try not to forget. And we try to remember that respect for yourself is an equally important part of good etiquette, that it's mm-hmm. how you can feel good enough to participate well. And without saying that I would want anyone to do anything that really violated their, their sense of personal integrity and self-worth like you as this particular scene plays out more and more that final situation of in a hurried moment people begging you to participate really being invested in you doing it There are not being a lot of other apparent options i can understand saying you know what at this stage the scene that's going to result from this is a bigger deal and is more trouble than it's worth to me. And frankly might cause more harm than I would want to cause Mm -hmm. or would just leave someone feeling awkward and embarrassed in a way that I really wouldn't want to do that to them. I will, I will endure it and I will experience that awkwardness and that embarrassment myself to avoid putting it on someone else. And I think that's, that's a real test and I think it's an ultimate test of our, our etiquette. And if it's too much, I, I wouldn't tell anyone they have to do it. But like you, my yeah. instinct would be sort of as the factors continue to pile up and add up in that particular moment, I would I would do my best not just to avoid making a scene, but to avoid putting someone else in a situation where they felt worse than I might by saying yes to the thing itself.
1: It can be hard to weigh those out sometimes, Dan, but I think you've done a really good job at describing what kind of tips the scale in one direction versus the other.
0: As is often the case, the only other thought that I have to add to this answer is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And Uh, if you could ever find yourself in a place where you could sense these moments coming ahead of time, if there's a way as a bridesmaid you can mention... To a bride, when the stakes are low, preferably many days before the event is occurring.
1: Oh, yeah, like weeks before.
0: (laughs) That's a particular thing that while you understand it's a big part of a lot of weddings, that it's not something you're particularly interested in participating in. It -hmm. sets you up much, much better to decline if you get asked day of by someone else and much Mm -hmm. less likely to be asked by the bride themselves.
1: Absolutely. And I would just double that that goes whether you're a bridesmaid or you're a guest. Um, if that's a conversation you're able to, to have with the bride, uh, like we were saying a couple of weeks before the wedding, I think it'll probably make it a lot easier in the moment. Even if there's been lots of champagne that night or someone's really caught up in the day or ooh. that kind of a thing, um, as, as Dan said, an ounce of prevention uh, for a pound ooh. of cure. Ooh, ooh,
0: ooh. I have one more yeah. idea.
1: What? Oh, what? What's that? What's
0: that? I was thinking about this <laughs> while reading the question, and I just remembered: grab some guys who are unmarried and get them out on yes! the floor to catch oh, that bouquet with you. Would be another possibility, <laughs> um, for a way you, that we might you, mix up you. this tradition a little bit.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And it is not unheard of. I have, I have definitely seen this. Feel free to go for it. <laughs>
0: My singleness is not a character trait. Thank you so much for this question. It gives us a chance to look at a particular wedding tradition that might not be so positive for everyone who's asked to participate in it. You realize that it's the simple things, being friendly, thinking of the other person, and showing respect that make up everyday courtesy. Real living courtesy has made the evening a pleasure and a success.
1: This question is very dully titled, Issues with an Invite. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you for your wonderful podcast and congratulations on all of the exciting upcoming events in your lives. I'm, of course, talking about Lizzie's dog training (laughs) and Dan's upcoming potty training. Oh, that is really funny. I had this question in December and didn't get a chance to submit before having to respond on my own. I think it's still an appropriate topic for upcoming invitations. In early December, I received a mailed quote-unquote neighborhood Christmas party invitation from some neighbors who live around the block. A reply was requested by phone or text. I only know these neighbors by sight when they walk their dog past my house and have not spoken to them more than a quick hello. I was perplexed on how to respond since there was no mention of vaccination status, masks, social distancing, or anything related to our current pandemic. I would have liked to attend if I was assured that there were some safeguards in place, but did not know how to ask without sounding contentious. I suspected since it wasn't mentioned that maybe they were not vaccinated. I actually searched the web for a good response, didn't even find one on Emily Post, and oh. wow, I know, and wound up sending the following text. Hi, Stan and Sue. This is neighbor Carol Smith. Thanks so much for the party invitation, but John and I won't be able to attend. We aren't attending any gatherings this year. Have fun. Sue replied back thanking me for letting them know. I found out later from an attendee that there was no consideration to the pandemic at all during the party. She and her husband left after chatting for a few minutes with some other neighbors who they know had been vaccinated. Here's my final question. What is the proper response to an invitation like this from people who you don't really know? My first inclination was to ask directly about what they were doing to safeguard their guests, but felt like that would be too confrontational and cause a neighborhood rift. I hope they got the gist of my concern from my texted response, though I suspect they don't really care. Since then, by the way, I have turned down invitations to dinner or girls' night out with close friends and felt totally comfortable giving the reasons. Hope you have a wonderful recharge time off. Sherry.
0: Sherry, thank you so much for the question and for the uh, well wishes for that restful time away. I'm certainly looking forward to it, although who knows how restful anything can be with a new baby in the house. I really thought that your answer here was pretty spot on. I thought it was very much in line with the kind of etiquette advice that I think Lizzie and I would get behind on this show. I think that it was excellent that you replied to the invitation, first of all. (laughs) It is so easy when you're invited to something and you're unsure and you're not going to go to just not reply at all. And that question mark is really the rudest thing you can do as a guest. So you get your etiquette kudos, your high marks for getting that RSVP out and for doing it, even though you're declining. And even though you might've felt a little bit awkward about the way that you were declining or, or what type of language you would use to do it. And that can often be the biggest hurdle for people. So first of all, good work there. And the second sort of etiquette kudos that i want to offer you is one where you thought about the relationship and how well you knew the people involved i think that the language that you ended up choosing to go with makes a lot of sense and it's the the kind of language that i would probably lean into personally where you decline clearly you thank them genuinely for inviting you And you gave just a little bit of an explanation and it was an explanation that doesn't call out them either the way they presented the party or the choices they've made, but identified the reasons as being reasons that come from you and your approach to gatherings at this point. And I, I think that there is a certain subtlety to what you did by mentioning that you're not going to any large gatherings this year. I think that you're locating that decision in time and around numbers of people in a way that after two plus years of operating in a a pandemic environment, most people are going to pick up on what you're talking about, the reasons for it, and that those are your personal reasons. So I think that you've given them enough clues. You've laid out enough breadcrumbs that if they want to follow it back to the gingerbread house and think about the flip side of this advice, which would be the advice I would give a host issuing this invitation that they might consider some sort of acknowledgement of the pandemic environment and what their safety procedures, protocols, or assumptions are or aren't in a way that it gives guests more information for making decisions. But now I'm jumping over into host <laughs> advice and I really wanted to stay focused on the guest because I, I, I think you made some really good choices and I appreciated the way you mentioned that for more specific invitations from people that you know better that you were able to have the discussions about why. Mm-hmm. which really falls in line with the advice that Lizzie and I have been giving for a while now, which is to treat questions about health and safety related concerns the same way you would food and allergy mm-hmm. restrictions or or realities. That it's information that hosts and guests need to exchange so it's best done early and in as factual a way as possible and in a way that doesn't put a lot of pressure on someone else to conform, attend, do something they don't want to do mm-hmm. or or be unsafe. I think from a guest perspective, you did a really good job here.
1: I think so too, especially cuz this is someone you don't entertain with a ton. I can I can see the desire to to not maybe do what we often advise, which is that it is perfectly okay to ask people what their covid safety protocols are if they haven't mentioned anything. And to ask that in a way that helps to remove judgment. Sometimes I think that can be more easily done over the phone. And I know that most of us lean into text messaged communications these days. But in the text message, I think where it could help is to say, you know, love love the idea of coming to the party. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm being really cautious right now, and so I was wondering if you'd be willing to share what COVID safety protocols or what you're expecting from guests in terms of safety protocols, you know, during this pandemic. I think that that could be a way that you can get there via a text message where you're not getting the chance to to use the tone in your voice to convey that you're just inquiring, you're just gathering information. But that's the type of tone that you would want it to have if you were going to go the route of asking. Um, and it sounds like you're, you're really comfortable asking and double checking with folks that you're a bit more familiar with. But we, you know, in, like in this case, we don't always get invitations from people who we know what their vaccination status is or what their protocols generally are. Even when we do, I know I've started asking my friends a little bit more just because it's been a while since I've checked in with people. And I don't know who's feeling like, you know, looser with it versus who's really kind of buttoning down those hatches and and being really, really cautious. So I think there is a way to ask the question, even of someone who you don't know these statuses of.
0: Lizzie Post, thank you so much for really clarifying that because I couldn't Agree anymore? If you did want to ask what those procedures were, absolutely a quick a quick question is so reasonable these days. And in that spirit of, I'm just getting a little more information so I can give you a good answer. I, I think that's a really it's a really important reminder that that's yeah, an you option for you. Kind of like as well. put
1: it on you. I'm doing this, you know, just the same way Sherry did in in her actual text message that went to them. <laughs> you know, we're not going to gatherings right now or big gatherings right now. Sherry, we think that you've actually got this down pretty pat, but we really appreciate you asking this question, and we hope that there are easier invitations in the future.
0: Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at Emily post Institute. And on Facebook, we're awesome Etiquette. Just remember, use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show.
1: If you're enjoying Awesome Etiquette, please, please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at Patreon.com slash Awesome Etiquette. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you help keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already sustaining members, thank you so much for your support.
0: It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today, we have feedback from Lubna on episode 385.
1: Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I had so many thoughts about the landlord question. I love your sample scripts. Another thought would be, what if the neighbor said, sure, I'd love to help. It's not something that I do for a job, but if you need, I can do it for $50 or whatever this one time. I'm sure in the future, a handyman might be the best person for stuff like this. I know it's not as direct, but I think it conveys what the question asker feels about the situation. Also, any Zoom calls happening soon? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Love that. thank you so much for the feedback and the question. And yes, there will be some more Zoom calls happening, food. Keep your eyes on your Patreon messages for more info on that um i also i just love your suggestion i love a sample script that replies yeah i'd be happy to do it for 50 bucks essentially offering to for offering them a rate that they would be (laughs) paying someone else i just i and it does it communicates a lot it communicates your entire Mm -hmm. intent and your willingness to help and also what it's going to take to engage that willingness (laughs) i think it's 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 excellent
1: thank you so much for the feedback
0: And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next piece of feedback, update, or question to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to talk about some now and then etiquette. We'll be looking at points of etiquette from Emily's 1922 edition that have changed by 2022. And before we get going, I have to tell a little story about the origin of this Postscript. And that's that Lizzie and I are starting to do a lot of media interviews where we're talking about the 100th anniversary of the Emily Post etiquette brand and the coming of the 20th edition of Emily Post Etiquette and almost universally you get asked in these interviews, well, give me some examples of some ways that etiquette (laughs) has changed. Give me some examples from 1922 and today that illustrate how etiquette has changed. And it would sound like such an easy task and it's actually harder than it sounds as Anybody that listens to this show regularly knows a lot of etiquette stays remarkably consistent. Those Mm -hmm. core principles of consideration, respect, and honesty really shine through a lot of our social expectations. And when you're looking for significant changes or or, or behavior changes that illustrate deeper changes, the answer is usually that the changes are more details. They're more manners and they – usually show a consistency with underlying <laughs> principles of consideration, respect, and honesty. So Lizzie and I have been thinking a lot about this question and looking for it's examples true. that that illustrate all of these things that I'm saying, but do it much more succinctly and with examples for people. So Lizzie, you want to take us through a couple or?
1: I absolutely will. And I'll just before I do, I'll piggyback on what you just said. I also think that Unexcitingly, a lot of the changes are things you already know and experience and, and are sometimes even things that are lamented or they are things that are heavily cheered. Um, you know, and so it's, it's, it's always like, we know that a lot of people do not experience the world of dating with a chaperone and Emily's 1922 edition talks about chaperones and, you know, by the fifties and sixties, they're not talking about chaperones anymore. It's that, that piece of etiquette is sort of gone. (laughs) Um, but I, I did delight in finding some of the things that, that we wrote about or talked about, um, that were also in the 1922. And, and to see how they changed. And one of the first ones was in introductions. And, and this one gets a little bit of a caveat because technically you could still operate under Emily's rule. Um, and there are some places where you might really be able to. But for the most part, introductions are a lot more casual. So in 1922, Emily wrote, the younger person is always presented to the older person or more distinguished, but a gentleman is always, Always presented to a lady, even though he is an old gentleman of great distinction, and the lady a mere slip of a girl. And I like the fact that our introductions have have become less, um, for, I would say, formalized. Not in the sense that it's not important to do them but less formalized in terms of guessing people's age or distinction. There are lots of cases where you just might not know exactly. So I'm a fan of this particular change. But in 2022, you know, we don't often say, may I present this person to you? And it's a question that we're framing to the older, more distinguished person of the introduction.
0: I was thinking about how introductions have changed over time. And it's it's almost a perfect example of the problem, and the problem being that introductions <laughs> were made fundamentally important, and that you show respect to people in ways that they can recognize and understand has stayed remarkably consistent and at the same time, introductions are about first meetings, so they oftentimes are designed to honor and respect social hierarchy, and then they also are wrapped up in how we identify ourselves and each other so Whenever we have changes in our social hierarchy or in ways that we identify, introductions change. And they change in, in some ways, really fundamental ways, and in other ways, they really stay remarkably consistent. I'm curious, Lizzie, do you have other examples maybe from some different areas of etiquette? Oh,
1: of course, of course. In the area of engagement etiquette, in 1922, Emily writes this about men and women who are engaged – And it's titled The Etiquette of Engaged People. It is unnecessary to say that an engaged man shows no attention, whatever, to other women. It should be plain to everyone, even though he need not behave like a moon calf, that one, and that's in quotes, is alone in his thoughts. Often it so happens that engaged people are very little together because he is away at work or for other reasons. Rather than sit home alone, she may continue to go out in society, which is quite all right, but she must avoid being with any one man more than another, and she should remain visibly within the general circle of her group. It always gives gossip a chance to see an engaged girl sitting out dances with any particular man. And slander is never far away if any evidence of ardor creeps into their regard, even if it be merely quote-unquote manner and actually mean nothing at all. I like because this, this idea of the perception of of where your romantic attentions
0: are during your engagement period, which
1: I don't think – did you experience any of that when you were engaged? I don't, I
0: don't know. know. I made it to the wedding, so probably not. <laughs> I think it's still good advice. But today- I, I would draw those circles in different <laughs> places in terms of stay inside this or don't – but – um. Again, core advice, solid particulars look a little suspect from a hundred year distance.
1: <laughs> they do. Today, I think we have uh, cross gender friendships all over the place and and people tend to be, although we know jealousy can can creep in pretty secure and they know each other's Friend circles and things like that. So you know, if if you were off with your friend Kelsey during the engagement period, eyebrows wouldn't be raised, or tongues wagging, or fingers fingers shaking in your direction at all. Um, and I think these are some of the things people most certainly appreciate about etiquette today, and or the evolution of etiquette today. That these aren't the kinds of things that we allow to create a whole lot of gossip or scandal or slander, as Emily puts it. So the next piece of advice, I think the word alone will feel a little old fashioned to us. And it's about the trousseau, which um, Emily describes, I think actually really well. And and it's really cute because this particular quote, Dan has Emily reflecting back on what previous generations Uh. trousseau's might look like and she makes a little joke about it so the trousseau a trousseau according to the derivation of the word was a little truss or bundle that the bride carried with her to the house of her husband in modern times the quote unquote little bundle often requires the services of a van to transport Which I just love her joking about that the wrappers and underclothes of a young girl are usually very simple, but when she is to be a bride, her mother buys her as lavishly as she can and of the prettiest possible assortment of lace-trimmed lingerie, tea gowns, bed sacks, and that's spelled S-A-C-Q-U-E-S, and caps. Whatever may be thought especially becoming, the various underdress garments which are to be worn in her room or at the breakfast table, and for the sole admiration of her husband, are of far greater importance than the dresses and hats to be worn in public. Woo! That's saying something. That your your nightgown and your PJs are the most important things for you to be bringing. I thought that was really interesting that back then the idea was that the thing in an Emily's day, you know, an original Trousseau might have any number of things in it that a young woman would be bringing to her husband and his family as she, she enters and kind of joins this new family. Um, but to to think of how in Emily's day, that had really translated to be your undergarments, your cozy clothes that you wear at home. Today, I think we just call it athleisure, and we have a lot of it at home on our own. <laughs> um, I know there's still lingerie and bed gowns and, and and beautiful negligees and things like that, and robes, but you don't think of, of yourself I I would imagine when you're a bride, like packing up those particular things and in Emily's imagination into a van and driving them to your new house. Most people are living together already.
0: I find it uh, amusing. It puts a smile on my face that the content that Emily discusses that's as close to risque as possible (laughs) um, has to be dressed up in a... French words (laughs) that somehow the risky nature of it uh, warrants, warrants Frenchifying it in some way, or at least that's the impression that I get.
1: (laughs) The final piece that we have is from Emily's formal dinners section. And in 1922, she's talking about don'ts in table setting, and there's an exclamation point at the end of that header, which I find so funny. And she starts this section with something that is still very true today. She actually is talking about no labels on the table, which we we still say in formal dining, you know, you don't want that ketchup bottle in the bottle with the label on it at the table. Instead, it's served in a little dish with a little spoon or something like that. And there are lots of things that fall into that category But as she moves on from from the no labels at the table, she says, saucers for vegetables are contrary to all etiquette. The only extra plates ever permitted are the bread and butter plates, which are put on at breakfast and lunch and supper above and to the left of the forks, but never at dinner. And that I had to laugh at because we definitely use the butter plate and the butter knife at dinner all the time. It's a part of the standard, a part of the formal t- dinner table setting. It was really comical to read that that at one point that was never a part of the dinner table setting.
0: And while very little changes about our most essential table manners, how we dress up and dress down the table seems to be one of those places where we have seen some change.
1: Absolutely, there must have been Dan at at some point in the 1920s, like a a trend, and and Emily would call it a, an incorrect trend or a misconception that dressing your table with like ribbons and bows would make it all the prettier, you know, like going uh-huh. for an extravagant tablescape. And she poo it. She absolutely says, No, 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 we don't do this. You don't put these things on. It's too much extra. And it it just it it made me laugh. I don't think we do so much ribbons and bows today, but I know of many a hostess who's had a lot of fun with their tablescape, whether it's with confetti or a really um inspired and different way of like arranging flowers on the table maybe they're scattered throughout as opposed to in one big bunch so it was kind of fun to hear her her take on what i think were some kind of trends that were happening at the moment in 1922
0: absolutely <laughs> well i don't know if we're any closer to finding perfect examples of how etiquette changed but I do enjoy taking a tour through Emily Post and thinking about differences big and small as we're all part of this tradition and we are marking this 100 years. It's fun to look back. Thanks for taking us on that tour, Lizzie Post.
1: Thanks so much for being with me for it. <laughs> Say, Kate, next Friday there's going to be a weenie roast, or there'll be a bowling party if you'd rather do that or, or we could go to the band concert
0: well, I'd enjoy going to the weenie roast very much. Unless you'd never go bone.
1: No, I'd rather go to the weenie roast. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world. Yes, it really does still happen, and it can come in so many forms. And today, we have a salute from Ray.
0: Hello, Dan, Lizzie, and the whole Awesome Etiquette Emily Post team. I would like to thank you and offer an etiquette salute to you. I have been a listener to Awesome Etiquette since early on, so there are many things for me to say thank you for. What I'm writing about today... What I'd like to salute you for is the way you make etiquette accessible. You give us the framework that makes it easy to figure out what the right thing to do is in most situations. I have a sweet friend who, while an adult, is young enough to be my daughter. She grew up in horrific circumstances, so the niceties like manners were not something she learned. We got talking recently about how much I enjoy getting into the intricacies of etiquette, and that led to a conversation about manners in general. I was able to assure her. That the fact that she didn't know every rule didn't mean she didn't operate without good manners. She is a kind, loving, and considerate person. So telling her that it's really about practicing consideration, respect, and honesty eased her mind. Thanks to you, your podcast, and your books, I was able to explain some of the basics, which she had picked up by being the recipient of those basics. We talked about the golden rule and the platinum rule. Thank you for giving me language to use that made it easy for her to understand. Thank you also for making etiquette so simple instead of some big, scary thing. Keep up the good work. Warm regards, Ray.
1: Ray, thank you so much for that salute. It's really, really kind. I know sometimes I get a little squeamish about us doing the ones that are for us, Dan, but this was a really a nice a nice salute kind of to the show and how, how it could help in this etiquette as accessible thing. So it's, I, I really appreciate that, Ray. Thank you for taking the time.
0: I'll second that and say it it also warms my heart to hear that the show is making etiquette more approachable. That is one of Lizzie Post's and my great hopes for awesome etiquette. Thank you so much for this salute.
1: And thank you, our audience, for listening.
0: And thank you to everyone who sent us something and everyone who supports us on Patreon.
1: Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, coworkers, whoever you like to share podcasts with in any way that you like to share podcasts.
0: You can send us your next question, feedback, or salute by email to awesome etiquette at Emily You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802 858 Kind. That's 802 858 5463. On Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we're both Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute.
1: Please consider becoming a sustaining member of the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on your favorite podcast app, and please consider leaving us a review. It helps our show ranking, which helps more people find awesome etiquette.
0: Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd.
1: Thanks, Chris Chris and and Bridget. Bridget.